Welcome. Welcome to Dinger Derby, the official podcast of RedRaiderDugout.com. The only website completely devoted to Texas Tech baseball. Join Keith Patrick twice a week for team news, guests, ranking updates, and game reports. We'll be hitting taters with the Red Raiders from opening weekend all the way through Omaha. This is Dinger Derby. Welcome into the Dinger Derby podcast, everybody. The only podcast devoted 100% to Texas Tech Red Raider baseball. I'm your host, Keith Patrick, joined by Dr. Mike Gustafson and George Watson. We're going to talk a little bit about this regional tournament we just finished up and the Super Regional headed to town want to say thank you for joining us. Thanks for supporting Red Raider Dugout and Dinger Derby. I know we've been on a little bit of a hiatus. I've had a bunch of work stuff going on, but it's postseason baseball time. We do everything we can to make some time to get you up to date with what's happening, what's coming, and what we're seeing from this team. You can follow George at TTU Jorge, J-O-R-G-E on Twitter. Follow Gus at Gus26. The number's 26. I'm at Keith B. Patrick and at Red Raider Dugout. Thanks again to everybody for all your support. Looking forward to a, a great postseason. We've got one portion of that postseason under our belt, boys. And, you know, general thoughts about the regional. We've seen a bunch of them. This was the third sweep in a row. It was the first time since 2016, though, that you've played all the teams in the regional. So got to kind of see everybody. You saw two seed go down on the first night to the three. And um, I thought it was overall a good weekend for the Red Raiders and a good weekend of baseball all around. Well, there's no doubt. Um you know, the, we talked about brand names in that regional from the first day it flashed up on the screen at Army, North Carolina, UCLA, and of course, North Carolina and UCLA with recent baseball traditions over the last decade or so, in which they'd been to Omaha several times. Of course, UCLA won one, lost once in the finals, uh, you know, and, and so to, to have those guys in our in our ballpark. Number one was great. It was wonderful on Friday night to sit there and watch those two play each other in Lubbock um, at our ballpark. But then it was great to take them both down and uh, really a, a ideal scenario in terms of North Carolina. That was a pitching thin ball club that had one really good starter at the top of that staff and then thin after that. And that was by their head coach's own declaration at the beginning of the regional. Yeah, Uh, it it worked out well that North Carolina took down UCLA and put them into a loser's bracket situation that by the time we faced UCLA, it was their fourth game and our third. And, and, uh, you know, in the end, the Red Raiders win three games relatively easily. Certainly looks easy at the end with the final scores. That's that's no doubt about it. Go ahead, George. Yeah, I was impressed. I I was concerned. I didn't know what kind of crowd reaction we would get. I I mean, obviously I think I knew it would be well attended because it always is, but at the same time, you know, the last time we saw playoff baseball at at the law, it was against a rival, so to speak, in Oklahoma state, a big 12 rival that you knew very well that, that you'd gone to battle with, you know, four or five times already that season. So, you know, with with three new teams or or with at least two two new teams that you'd never really seen before that, that, that Lubbock had never seen before. I was curious how they would, uh, how, how the energy would be in the stadium and, for crying out loud, the energy Saturday night was just outstanding. Um, you know, for for the uh, North Carolina, yeah. Game. That, I mean, that was you, you could you know, that that felt like a 
a conference game or a game three to go to Omaha type game. And, you know, I, you know, I think there was pretty similar uh, energy against, uh, against UCLA the following night, uh, maybe not as high, but I think there was similar energy in the park. And I think the guys fed off that. I think, I think they utilized that and they went out there and, and, I thought they were very businesslike throughout the weekend. They went out there, they 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 got the job done. They they really didn't, they really weren't threatened all that much, except maybe early in a couple games. But other than that, I thought they really went out there and and took care of business and did a great job. You know, I was thinking, guys, and, and I totally agree, George. That's uh, the energy was fantastic. I was thinking about having the service academy there. It's second time in a row you've had Army in the house for the postseason. They play super disciplined baseball. They play more small ball than you're used to seeing in the Big 12. I thought it was a good test for the team to get out there and face a team like that that wasn't going to make a lot of unforced mistakes. But um, and, and their class act, you know, and, and it's it's crazy because all of their seniors have graduated and are second lieutenants in the Army now. And uh, it's just a, it's a cool thing to get to play them. But as they pushed you forward um, and you go into that North Carolina game – I was thinking about Friday night, too, and you mentioned it, Gus. I mean, you guys have been around longer than me. Have you seen that many fans at a non-Texas Tech game in a regional? I mean, there that was a big crowd. I mean, it wasn't packed, but there was 2,500 people there, I would say, for a, a game between North Carolina and UCLA on a Friday night. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember seeing more than that. I, I don't um... – I'd, I'd really have to think about it, but I sure don't. And and I think and and really, you're talking about two two fan bases that aren't local. I mean, so right. it wasn't their fans that filled up that ballpark or that put you know thousand two thousand people in there. It was it was Lubbock people and people from this area that wanted to go out and see a couple of brand names go out, and they were treated to a really good ball game. That game was a five to four game that went down to the last pitch. Yeah, it was a really good game. The two fan bases that were there, and, and they had a reasonable contingents, um, but not huge. I mean, traveling family kind of fan bases, they were salty and fired up on both sides. And But yeah, it's, you know, we've always talked about, and it's fun to hear broadcasters come in in the postseason and talk about, you know, how baseball intelligent our fan base is, how much time they spend, you know, or how much they seem to understand the game and how passionate they are. So it's cool to see them come out for other good baseball you know, even though it wasn't their game. Yeah, it was funny. I was talking to – I went in and, and watched the Sunday game before before the Tech game against UCLA and, and North Carolina, the elimination game. And I was talking to some of the, the UCLA fans and some of the uh, the, the, the co-ed, the student-aged the student aged population that was sitting there with them. And I was talking with them, and they, said, and they were like, who you root for? I said, well, I'm going to root for you guys. And they go – you know, because, you know, North Carolina fans were kind of salty. And then she goes, I know they are. They're rude, aren't they? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, thought, I thought that was kind of funny. So, so yeah, and, and, and to Gus's point, I mean, you're talking about two fan bases that, like he said, aren't local. And you don't hear about a lot of transplanted Tar Heels or Bruins that actually live in Lubbock. So, so, so you really had the true fans that traveled and – the, the, the true baseball fans in Lubbock that showed out and, and showed up, and I thought it was fantastic. I did too. It was a great weekend. And, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about what Texas Tech did on the weekend because obviously that's the story that we're really all here for. I mean, you beat Army 6 3. Uh, it was closer, you know, early on and, and a, a game that uh, 
you didn't just explode, but I don't think you were ever going to. You beat Army 11 to 2 in 2019, but this is a little bit different team. They've been there before. Their coach talked about it in the post game. He said, Hey, I, I thought last time we were happy to be here. I thought this time we came to win a ball game. And I thought that was a great attitude. You beat North Carolina 7 2, UCLA 8 2. I mean, I, I'm, I think everybody has the name on, has the name Kurt Wilson on the tip of their tongue. But for you guys, if you look at an MVP for the weekend, and we can talk about Kurt Wilson, but maybe somebody else, if it's if, if it is him, that was kind of your breakout or MVP for the weekend that that we should be looking at. I thought it was really good to see Easton Morrell do what he did. Um, certainly, certainly, he was a key part. He was the post game interview against UCLA. Uh, I believe it was three base hits and uh, scored a couple runs, drove in a couple runs, and they were all big spots. It was good to see him do that. Yeah, I think maybe the MVP for me uh, might have been Chase Hampton because, you know, Tim kind of did a deal that he doesn't normally do and and not going with the guy that's been his Friday guy throughout the year in that first game. He's, he normally does that. He changed it up this year and decided to go with Hampton in that first game. Now, not saying that Chase hasn't earned it. Chase has pitched very, very well here down the stretch, especially late you know, against Kansas in the Big 12 tournament. And so he got the start, and he went out there and did what needed to – gave you what you needed as far, as far as a quality start to where that kind of strategy of not throwing your quote-unquote ace backfires on you like it did with some teams in the regional. So I thought he – his his execution, his his pitching, his, his command allowed you to execute not only your game plan for that game but your game plan for the rest of the weekend as well. And George talking about UCLA there, holding Zach Petway out and really for the first two games and, and saved him for the red or for the elimination game again when they faced North Carolina the second time around, uh, maybe bit them a little bit. And and as Gus talked about, North Carolina really only came in with one pitcher. And it was interesting in the post-practice press conference, North Carolina head coach just basically saying, hey, I don't have a second starter, so we'll just figure out what happens when we get to that point. And, and they just had to piece things together, which that's the key. I mean, that's the team you build in, in postseason baseball, particularly for the regional. You've got to have that depth to be able to round robin around and, and move around and have guys. And so having Hampton step up and then, of course, seeing Micah Dallas come out of the bullpen, and we saw him twice on Friday and then again on Sunday. What did you guys think of his performance and what he looks like coming out of the pen, what that adds for this team. Well, there's big energy from him. His pace, the pace quickens generally, and it certainly did playing against UCLA that just their their pace, my goodness, their their pace just seemed to be slow. It seemed like they played long games, whoever they were playing against. But, uh, you know, he jumped out there on Sunday night and, and the pace quickened and – he was filling the strike zone up and was just lethal. I thought his breaking ball was as good as it's been. You know, oh, he's been he said he's been very good down the stretch here, but his breaking ball was vintage Micah. You saw just swing after swing after swing of guys swinging over that that you know that breaking ball that Braxton's blocking, and you know the final out of the game was an indicator of that. Um, it was just it, it was it was vintage Micah Dallas, and it was. Uh, the emergence of Hampton allowed Micah to return to the pen, and we got Sublet and Micah, and and it feels like there's a real back end to this staff now that that uh, you know, and Tim would say that they believe in all their guys. Um, I you know we've all heard him say that, but Micah Micah and Sublet is you know that that's high end, and what what Sublet did that may be your next question. 
Keith wants to bless me on Saturday. <laughs> I won't get too far ahead of you. I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> well, it's it's changed our conversation, you know, and, and that's really what I was kind of getting to. We've talked about how long can you wait to get to Sublette? You know, can you can you get out of a Friday without Sublette? Can you wait until Saturday, particularly when you're talking about a regional? And now you have a situation where you've got Micah Dallas as well. And Sublette can come in and do long relief if you need him to. And Micah Dallas can be available for the last couple innings or he can be available twice as he was this weekend, 11 pitches on Friday and then came back out Sunday and, and pitched the last two innings. And then you got two clean innings out of Andrew Devine and Derek Bridges on Sunday as well, which I thought was big. And not to leave out, I keep forgetting him, Connor Queen bridged the way a little bit to Micah Dallas uh, on the, in the Friday game. So I think that, and maybe for the first time this season, you know, fans have been frustrated with the bullpen. We've had to watch them grow up. There's, of course, the injury issue to talk about too. But I think for the first time, you feel walking out of that weekend like, hey, there's there's a, a group of bullpen guys that you can call on in the situations and feel like they're going to be able to handle what they are. And, you know, I'm, I wasn't surprised to see Devine and, and Bridges. I even told the guys on the media side, hey, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Girton even to, uh, trying to get some innings under those guys in the big situation because you're going to need them down the stretch, particularly if this weekend goes the way you want it to as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if if Tim kind of actually sticks to kind of kind of the same game plan. Uh, you know, Coach, I always remember Coach Hayes always used to say, "It's not whether they can do it; it's whether they can repeat it." And so mm-hmm. we seen them do it this weekend. Can they repeat it? Now that that, that remains to be the question. And, and we we've, we've seen Divine do it throughout the season, but he comes back the next time and doesn't repeat it. Kind of the same with Connor; he'll do it one time and he and he won't do it the next. So. It's, it's that whole game plan of whether you can can repeat it. And, you know, when when, when Hampton started the game against Kansas, we, I think Tim was probably pointing to this this past weekend as far as how he wanted to, to formulate the staff for the regional in having Micah be – because Micah can be a, a, a two-appearance guy, so sandwich him around Sublette, and you fill in with the other guys you, you can you can feel confident in, and you kind of shorten up your bullpen and, and go with those guys. It wouldn't surprise me if it's per, basically – the same guys that you see this weekend, uh, you know, going, you know, with your three starters, Micah and Sublet at the back end, and then you and you bridge it with with Queen, you bridge it with Divine, you bridge it with uh, Bridges. So, uh, you know, an interesting stat. You know, I, I walked out of the stadium, I was like, wow, everybody thought we were going to have to bash our way to a regional victory this weekend, this past weekend. Everybody thought it was going you were going to have to score ten runs a game, whatever. Came out of this weekend, Texas Tech's pitching staff total for three games gave up five earned runs. They had like a 1.667 ERA for the weekend. I mean, I mean, you can't, you're not going to lose many regionals when you're when you're pitching like that. I, first of all, I I think you just came up with something there talking about sub sandwich and Micah Dallas. So we need to we need sub to work sandwich. on that sub Micah sandwich Dallas somehow. Sub sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Um, also. Yeah, that's 100% true, and, and to greater college baseball, and I, I never saw the final number, but I know as of yesterday afternoon, and that was with games to be played last night and another completed today, the final uh, in the Columbia Regional, um, NCAA baseball this weekend hit more than 300 home runs, and I would imagine it's probably in the 310, 3 teens kind of range now, and that was way beyond, like 70 beyond what had been hit uh, in in past years. And so lots of power, surprising 
to not see that power and, and those numbers coming out of the Lubbock regional. And some of that, I think, was wind related. Um, and somebody asked Coach Tadlock what he thought about that, you know, if that was a game plan or versus what he wanted. And I mean, of course, his answer was, well, Earl Weaver loved the three run home run and, and I'll take whatever they give us, you know. So, huh. I, but I think that I do specifically remember Cole Stillwell often and Drew Baker as well running into a few, but then getting caught up in the wind and, and ending up, you know, uh, Baker ended up hitless in that final game against UCLA. And, but John Savage even mentioned that, hey, Drew Baker and Cal Colling went over 10 and look what Texas Tech was still able to put together on us. And so it was a, a full team effort from my standpoint in, in all three games. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cole mashed about five balls that would have gone out on any other day than, than when he hit them. Uh, and so I thought, I thought he hit, I thought he swung the ball. You know, most, most of the Tech's home runs came against Army, you know, with, with Conley's two. And, and I think some, someone, maybe Braxton had one, something like that. So, uh, right. yeah, so, so for the the rest of the regional, Tech did a good job of manufacturing runs, moving runners, you know, getting hits with two out hits, hits with runners in scoring position, and that, and that's what's going to win you games not only in the regional and the super regional, but it's going to help win you games when you get to the big park in in uh, Omaha if you get there. So, uh, you guys mentioned you talked about Morell Gus, and uh, there there was an all tournament team. Kurt Wilson was the most. Uh, valuable player of that Lubbock Regional. Braxton Fulford, Jace Young, Easton Morrell, Cole Stillwell, and Ryan Sublette on the all-tournament team. Wilson on there as well uh, for center field. And I thought that he was exceptional this weekend, and, and he's kind of taking up a lot of the conversation because of what he did in 19 and, and came on out of nowhere and now coming back from injury, and he's your starting center fielder. He went five for 11, two runs, four ribeyes, a double, a home run, and a walk. Uh, he had quite the weekend. You know, the fans love it. Uh, they love seeing him step up and do what he's doing. But I wanted to talk defensively what you thought about that. So you have you have Cole Stillwell at DH, Nate Romback starting at first base, uh, Kurt Wilson starting in center field, Drew Baker in left, Easton Morrell in right. And then what we saw in all, all three games, you get a lead. And in those middle innings, somewhere around the sixth or seventh, Coach Tadlock sends Dylan Carter back into center. Kurt Wilson over to left, Drew Baker to right, Easton Morrell will exit. And his answer to that when asked about it the first time was that he just wanted to get his best defender out into center field. And so what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that we continue to see if you get yourself into a lead? Um, and when is it that you wouldn't see that happen if those defensive changes? Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what would have to take place for that not to happen. Um, you know, he, he Tim was obviously the ball club. Everybody was – rewarded by all three of those guys being out there. I mean, Morell had a hit in the hitless game in there somewhere and drew drew did as well as, as you just talked about, but um, you know, that it, all of it worked out and uh, you know, we've really got, and it, it was interesting that instead of Baker going to center field, who probably is a step or two faster than Kurt, um, that, it, that he stayed with Baker and, and Morell in the corners and, Wilson returning from a broken thumb and who'd been out six weeks or thereabouts went, went to center field. And, uh, you know, it, it obviously wasn't an attempt to in, uh, inject some offense, you know, because, because really this year, Dylan Carter hadn't provided much offense just on the season. Um, and of course he returned about halfway through the season from the 
off-season shoulder thing. And so who, who knows what that is, but, um, you know, how, how much of that's affected him or whatever. But, um, you know, a lineup that, that post, post-broken thumb and post-Illinoisy had about six guys hitting in it. Uh, while Rombach struggled and was in and out of the lineup and, and, and Carter was out there and Parker Kelly suddenly had eight guys being productive. And then Parker picked up a base hit, a big base hit in the, the end of the UCLA ball game and just stretched things out. But you know, the, the, these Red Raider teams that we've really had so much success with over the last five years tend to have eight thumpers in them, occasionally nine thumpers in the lineup. And uh, you know, th- this team was hanging on for a while. Kirk comes back, Rombach gets going, and suddenly it's kind of the 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 lethal offense as we've had around here lately. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, well, and you mentioned it there, Rombach getting going too. I mean, such a huge piece that we've seen. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of a Kurt Wilson and, and Braxton Fulford, you know, has that, to me, has that Brian Klein gene. You know, he's very, really clutch and bring, comes up with clutch hits and, Something I noticed on Brax, and he didn't come around to score, but some heads-up base running from him this weekend, too. You know, hit against the shift and or was on against the shift and then took an extra base when they didn't cover. And that's the kind of stuff you get from a, you know, a senior guy or a graduated guy at the very least. And uh, those are the kind of things I saw Tech doing this weekend because they weren't dealing with so much other stuff going on and not getting themselves – worked up and errors and things like that. Like you said, it, it goes back to that business-like attitude. They felt locked into me. Uh, and there was a question to Coach Tadlock in one of the availabilities about, you know, are they are they locked in? Are they focused the way you want them to be? And he seemed pretty upbeat and saying we're getting there. And, of course, he followed it with saying they hadn't played their best baseball, which is his go-to line. But but feeling like they're getting to the point where they're competing at the level he needs them to, I think is, is pretty exciting to see, especially as you head into the opponent you're about to have this weekend. Well, it's kind of why I thought, you know, why I made the comment earlier that it, it seemed very businesslike, even after the, after winning the regional, you know, there was no, there was no dog pile. There were the, there was the, the customary, you know, handshakes, the high fives in the line come yeah. go, go through the, the Matador song and they're back to the, they're back to the clubhouse. So, that's why I say it was. It was it seemed like it's very businesslike, and it almost seems like that maybe this team has finally got it. I don't want to say they were bored with the regular season because I don't think that's the case. But it seems like now they've gotten to the postseason. There's enough people on this team that like, all right, here's what this is what we do. This is what we're built for. This is what we're what we've been working for. Let's go get it. And I think I think that's kind of the the attitude I saw out there this week. Yeah, this is why you came here. You know, I was up there doing coverage and. I didn't even look up for the final strike. I was kind of doing stuff on my computer, but I had no doubt in my mind they were not dogpiling. Like it just wasn't the DNA of the team. And certainly over the course of the weekend, it was, like I said, you came here to go to a college world series and win it. You didn't come here just to win the regional. And so there's things you don't want to lose. You know, there's excitement and appreciation and all that kind of stuff. But you also, that act like you've been here before kind of thing is certainly applies to them in in that situation. No doubt. Well, Anything else y'all want to talk about this weekend? Anything else you want to mention before we move on and look at Stanford and the Super? No, I think I'm good. No, sir. Not okay. on my end. Perfect. So, and you were right, by the way, on Morrell. Yeah, he went three for three with a walk, two RBIs, two runs scored. Um, really, really had a really nice game there in that one that you were talking about. So, Stanford – Goes the long way a little bit through their regional. They did not play all the teams. They played North Dakota State 
to start things off and then turn around and played UC Irvine, the Anteaters, three times. It went all the way to the Monday game. That one started at 6 Central. They took a big early lead. I think it was 11-2 at one point. They ended up winning it 11-8, to and that was the slugfest that kind of like George was talking about, just mashing their way out of it is what they ended up having to do. Uh, it was 60 degrees when I was watching that game. People were bundled up like it was February. Uh, that's going to be a little bit of a weather shock, I think. It's going to be 104 on Friday in Lubbock, and I imagine that the turf will be emanating at you know 125-plus degrees, I would assume. And so that's going to be a little different for them. There was also dozens of people taking in that game, and that's going to be a little bit different as well. Sellout number right now for Dan Lawfield at Rib Griffin Park is 47-37 with the left field bleachers. And we saw that number for every tech game this weekend. And so uh, just to give folks a little bit of perspective, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, Stanford, one of the marquee games or one of the marquee names in college baseball, they've got Buku tournament appearances. They were the team of the eighties. In my opinion, they tons of world series appearances all through the eighties, two titles, kind of a team of the nineties and really a team of the early two thousands too, if not for Oregon state, maybe would be talked about even more. And uh, there's some history with them, too, if anybody wants to hop in and and talk about the 95 and what Tech's history was with Stanford <laughs> back then. That's a It's a painful subject, I know. That was Tech's first NCAA appearance. I defer to Gus on that one. I wasn't even here. I was in North Texas at the time. <laughs> well, I, I was living in Oklahoma, but I followed it closely. Um, of course, 1995 – was Tech's first ever NCAA tournament team. Um, the, the program felt like it was ready for NCAA postseason play in 93 and certainly again in 94. But at that point in time, what everyone perceived was a team that was going to get in and 94 didn't. And Tech was basically told, hey, you're, the, the quality of the schedule isn't good enough. You know, they got, got less less non-Division one games. Um, and, and, you know, just step it up a notch. Well, obviously that, that, that there had been some frustration build up because by 1995, they kept recruiting well and kept recruiting well. And Clint Bryant kept emerging. Um, and it was the first of his two years as a national player of the year finalist, a Smith Award finalist. Um, and they, they just kicked the door down. I mean, they won the Southwest Conference, were the one seed traveling to Wichita. And got, uh, which, real, real quick, um, for folks out there, this was before the format change. So at that time, yes. the tournament was 48 teams. Six teams went to a regional. The winner of every regional went to the College World Series. Yep, that's it. That's exactly it. That was how they got to the eight teams, and the six-team bracket was goofy, and that ended in 1999. But, yeah, in 95, Tech goes up there and wins the first two, beat uh, Providence, thundered on Providence, like 20 runs. Something and then uh, Matt Miller beat Arkansas, as I recall, and then uh, Brandon Cole pitched a guy that ended up pitching in the big leagues and beat Stanford. And uh, as I recall, it was like three, yep, three, three to one. Yep. Yeah, there you go. And uh, and so Stanford had to beat somebody to get back to Tech, and then swept the doubleheader. And uh, it was Kyle Peterson that pitched the deciding game, and. Kyle was a freshman on that ball club and, and was a, it was an Omaha native. Kyle grew up in Omaha and went to Stanford. And, uh, and so, you know, you can imagine the emotion of pitching his ball club back to, you know, pitching to Omaha and he did it twice in his career was later a first round pick. But, uh, you know, one of the real 
really golden opportunities of Coach Hayes' time to, to get to Omaha. At that point, it felt like, hey, they're going to be really good and they're getting good for a while. And, you know, surely they'll get there again. And I think made the NCAA tournament eight of the next nine years and could never just get through the get through the deal. And uh, along the way, as you mentioned, uh, Keith, the 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 format changed kind of in the middle of his his years and all those teams. And, uh, you know, it changed to what we know now. Sixty four teams, 16, 14, double elimination regional, super region still never got there. And so, uh, you know, it. it uh I don't know. A lot of folks thinking about more more folks than I thought would be bringing up the 1995 ball club and and uh, you know the 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 it it uh, of course two of the two of the four retired numbers of Tech Clint Bryant and Larry Hayes were central figures among several others um, on that ball club and Frank Anderson one of the assistants who's now the pitching coach at Tennessee and I could go on and on and on but it it uh, folks folks are looking for revenge and. Uh, you know the the all time series uh, <laughs> is tied at two two games two games apiece because one of the very few takeaways from 2020 that we, re- we really don't talk much about 2020 and sort of a lot of what could have been and all that kind of stuff but one of the better moments of that season of 2020 last year was beating Stanford in Round Rock yeah and you go back you go back and look at their lineups from this weekend at their regional and go back and look at who faced us and they've probably got five returning starters. One of their three weekend starters apparently is one of the guys who may start here this weekend, pitched and lost to Tech last year. Micah Dallas was outstanding in four innings of relief against this ball club last year. So many of our guys are back from that that team other than than Klein and maybe maybe one other. And and so this, you know, the interesting that eighteen months ago or a little bit less than eighteen months ago, we were getting a foreshadow of a super regional. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite the game. And Bryce Bonin was dominant. Micah Dallas was dominant. They combined for 15 strikeouts. Dylan Noisy, Cal Conley, Dylan Carter, Jace Young, and Cole Stillwell all had extra base hits. And Stillwell, Noisy, and Conley both had multi-hit days. Uh, and it was a 7-2 victory, I believe, against Stanford in, uh, in Round Rock. It was a good one. And you're right, we don't talk about 2020 because it never had an end. And so it's hard to... <laughs> It's hard to talk about it and go anywhere with it, but you can almost count it in. So yeah, kind of crazy. You know, you're two and two against one of the one of the blue bloods of the sport, so to speak. And here you go, an opportunity to break the series tie with a super regional in Lubbock with a trip to Omaha on the line. So kind of turns all the way back around. I did a podcast earlier today with Carlos Silva and David Collier, and Collier said really spending the majority of his day digging for in the archives to find footage from 95 because everybody was clamoring for the you know the b-roll of the 95 and <laughs> at wichita state trying to get some some stuff and and there's been confusion even with myself about the order of those games so yeah that you you nailed it gus it was a it was a uh, a 24 to 5 victory over providence a 14 10 over arkansas stanford 3-1 stanford had to turn around and beat lamar for the second time it was 16-9 and they beat Tech two three with a walk off RBI or with an RBI single, a go ahead RBI single, and then beat Tech six five. And that, both of those were complete games for the uh, for the pitchers Iglesias and then Kyle Peterson the freshman. So it was a there's a lot of history there, and I think there's plenty of Tech fans that haven't forgotten. I think they even to the point of they don't like Kyle Peterson to this day <laughs> because of it. <laughs> well, I, I understand the emotion. KP's a good dude, but. Uh... 
I understand. At least, at least give it some context if you're not going to like him. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 uh, you know, this Stanford is also in the third or fourth year of, I guess, fourth year now of David Esker. And Esker played at Stanford in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And he played for Mark Marquis. Of course, Mark Marquis played at Stanford in the late 60s, first team All-American, got the head coaching job at Stanford at some ridiculously young age, 26, something like that. Coached 41 years, 16, I don't even know how many, how many thousands of wins, (laughs) 1,600 this year, so maybe 1,700 this year, an inductee into the National College Baseball of Fame, umpteen trips to Omaha, back-to-back national championships in the late 80s. And so, uh, you know, Stanford's certainly a blue blood program, at, at the very least a West Coast blue blood. And, uh, you know, such a, such a regular in Omaha under Coach Marquis, you, didn't, you know, it was just like you just penciled him in every year as hosting and, and being in that being in that national uh, championship conversation. And it was largely due to Coach Marquis and, and uh, you know, the way his his ball clubs were put together and run were a lot different than what we're seeing from this Stanford club here. Um, but, uh, you know, just they're, they're, they're blue bloods. They are, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Y'all want, uh, you want Stanford offense or pitching first? Well, 2021 Stanford. Yeah. The, the, the 2021 Stanford offense conversation is a lot longer than the Stanford pitching conversation this year. And, and that's really the, the part that's so unusual about this ball club that, you know, this club is really offensive, can really swing it. Big athletic dudes that hit a ton of home runs and they're playing at sea level doing that, not at 3,200 feet. I mean, there's so much to be impressed by. And, and, and the pitching deal is just the sort of anti Stanford and that they look a little bit like North Carolina and that they've got the one really good bona fide stud on the mound who pitched in game two, by the way, which may very well set up Saturday as an interesting pitching matchup. And then it's a lot of bullpen pieces and a lot of other pieces that, uh, you know, really make them compelling. But yeah, I'll, I'll let, uh, I'll let George take the offense. <laughs> let me set the, you can run with that. Cause that's going to take a while. No, sure. Let me set the table. Let me set the table on those a little bit, George. So the way I look at it, I mean, as I kind of, as I look at the stats, there's seven dudes, and you could pull their name off the stat sheet and jumble it up and not be able to tell the lines apart. I mean, other than three guys in double-digit home runs, it's very similar, you know, kind of one through seven. Brock Jones, Tim Tawa, Christian Robinson, Nick Brucer, Cody Huff, Drew Bowser, and Tommy Troy, just kind of up and down the line, all all really similar. And, um, now, and I'll let you take it away, and, and one of those names – is familiar to something we talked about. Tim Tawa in the in the February game last year hit the the two run bomb that got them up on the Red Raiders. Now Tech came back to win it, but there's a guy coming back. And interesting over the weekend uh, in their regional, they hit nine home runs in their in their Palo Alto regional in their four games, and he hit four of them. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Look, just looking at the numbers, just solely at the numbers. Their, their numbers are, are really a lot like Texas Tech in that you've got about two or three guys that are that are hitting over 300. Um, you've got and, – and it's not necessarily the same two or three guys that have double-digit home runs. You've got Brock Jones is leading them with 13 home runs. But he – you know, really he seemed to me maybe, in, at least in the games I saw in, that I was able to see or at least stay up late for and, and not fall asleep on, uh, 
you know, he, he, he really kind of struggled, uh, I thought, during the regional. It was guys like, like you said, like Tim Tawa, Drew Bowser, uh, Nick Bruiser, you know, guys like that that I thought really kind of stood out. You know, ta- you know, like I said, Jones has 13 home runs. Uh, Bruiser and, and Tawa have, have 10 each. So you, you kind of look at them and you're like, all right, you're thinking Jace Young, Kel Conley, Braxton Fulford. There's your three bashers right now for, for Texas Tech. But then you've got, you know, like you said, like you said, a kid named Tommy Troy has eight home runs. Christian Robinson, Vincent Martinez have seven. So there's a lot of those single digit guys like Tech has, like like Nate Rombach, like uh, you know, like like uh, uh, Cole Stillwell, guys like that. That that so they're re- like Gus said, they really are, you know, they're only hitting 279 as a team, but they really seem looking at them on paper or at least on on TV, they seem a lot more offensive than than maybe what their numbers show right now. There's something else that that compares as the home run leader with 13. That, but something else that compares Jones to Jace. He's batting 295, like you said, but he's slugging 574. His um, OPS is massive because his his on base percentage is a 450. He leads the team in, with 48 walks, which is the same number of walks Jace had. They're tied for 10th in the country in walks. Uh, and then you so, but the difference is with, with the Tech team. Uh, Jones, his 48 walks, he's got 23 more free passes than the next closest player on their team. I mean, so you're talking about a dude getting on, but he's almost like Drew Baker and Jace kind of, you know, mixed up in a, in a bottle as far as those two pieces of him, you know, reliability on base, but then hitting the the long ball too. Yeah. But at, at the same time though, you look at him, he's also got 55 strikeouts. So yeah. So, so there's kind of a balance there. He's also hit into four double plays. The thing about him is when he gets on base, you've got to watch him because he's he's fourteen of nineteen for stolen bases as well. So uh, yeah, leading the team, he, he seems like he's kind you of know, the the straw that stirs the drink, and then and then Tim Tawa comes in and, and kind of you know almost drives everybody in. Seems like um, you know he's got you know him and him and Bowser have thirty seven RBIs, Robinson has thirty nine. So I think there's good balance up and down the lineup as far as production and and, and guys. There's really not a guy I see that you're 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 looking at that like. Like, okay, you know, we can we can screw around with this guy and, and get him out. He's he's not that much of a threat. There's not there's not really that guy in that lineup. So so tech pitchers are gonna have to be very on point for all, you know, what, fifty four, you know, hundred some odd outs that, that that have to get played this weekend. You know, a guy like Jones that just when you see a guy that's got big strikeout and walk totals like like Jones, he's probably going deep into counts a lot. Um, I mean, you just, you, you can't have both of those without that. Uh, the the other little sidebar that might be interesting to listeners is that Tim Tawa, it was a fantastic high school football player, like a Gatorade state player of the year, like two or three times in football. Um, you know, all all the accolades you could really throw at a high school player, he was that. And so you're talking about a really high end athlete um, in, in Tawa. I mean, he's he's you know he's the real deal. And and we saw him snap on a Bryce Bond and fastball and hit it a mile last year. He's he's just that kind of guy. He's he's a premium athlete, and uh, you know probably has some professional baseball in his future. Yeah, and and Bowser comes from an athletic family as well. I think I saw where his mother is like in the Stanford Athletic Hall of Fame in some capacity oh, wow. out there. So, so yeah. So and and they showed her on on camera during the during the regional. She's wearing a very brightly colored jacket. So oh yeah, I saw. 
Yeah, yeah she was like an eighty, like an eighty-four class or something. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So if we see somebody in the stands that's wearing that that is wearing a very brightly colored jacket, that's her. Now there's somewhere. <laughs> so Bowser's the third baseman. Uh, there's somewhere he's a little weaker, and this team overall, their fielding percentage is slightly better than Tex. They're they're fielding a nine eighty. Bowser though fielding an eight eighty five at the hot corner, and so. I'm interested to see how that plays out. Now, I think his time is a little more limited, so his eight errors are are looking a little heavier as far as opportunities. But um, the lowest Red Raiders starter as far as a fielding percentage goes is a 941. So I'm interested to see if that plays into things because Tech is certainly a team that will hurt you if you're making errors. Yep, especially in this ballpark. So Gus uh, alluded to the one pitcher, and, and there's – one starter and, and another pitcher definitely worth talking about. Brendan Beck, right-hander uh, for the Cardinal. And by the way, uh, I did a I released a preview today. It's on RedRaiderDugout.com. You can go check that out. A lot of the numbers I'm talking about are in there. A lot of the stuff we're talking about. I actually wrote about how well-rounded it seems like this team is, so I'm glad you said that, George. Validated me a little bit. But um, Beck is a uh, – yeah. <laughs> Beck has an ERA of three. Uh, he's got 93 innings pitched. Uh, I'm impressed with the sub one whip. He's got a, a .95 here this this late in the season. That's 23rd nationally. 115 strikeouts to only 22 walks. Um, he's gone. He went seven innings pitched, seven hits, two runs, nine strikeouts. That he's not afraid to go over 100 pitches. That was against Irvine, as Gus said in the second game. And I I would assume they held him. Gus would be the thought there. And then. Yep. Um, his last regular season start was in their final series. It was against Oregon State uh, on a, a Friday night. And now Oregon State is a, a team that just lost the game seven to Dallas Baptist in the Fort Worth Regional. So this is a team that could have been a super team. And he went complete game, nine innings, three hits, no runs, a walk, and 10 Ks, went 107 pitches. So he's a dude. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You're facing a legitimate, maybe one of the best, starting pitching arms that you'll see also that you've seen this season. Yep. I, I maybe, you know, maybe in there buying time adding, but I, I agree with you there. Uh, you know, he, he just stands out. He jumps off the page sort of like Carolina's pitching did last weekend. And, um, you know, I looked at their big, their pack 12 game numbers just to see if the, if the pattern followed from, from the full season schedule to, to Pac-12 play, and you know Alex Williams started last weekend for them against North Dakota State, and he's been he's been a weekend guy for them through most of, of Pac-12 play, and so which which probably gives us an indication that if they stay in rotation, they'll be throwing you know perhaps their number two and then throwing their number one and Brendan Beck on Saturday. And again, we're we're guessing at this at this point. Uh, Quinn Matthews, the guy that made nine appearances and eight starts in Pac-12 play, the numbers were rough on the season, and the numbers were rough in Pac-12 play. A nine ERA and a one and two record in 29 innings of work. He was hit hard. He walked people, um, which probably gives you an indication of, uh, you know, where they are with their starting pitching. Um, you know, they, they may be two starters deep, whereas North Carolina was one and UCLA was probably three starters deep. But uh, this appears to be a team uh, like like the Red Raiders saw on Saturday and Sunday nights in which uh, the bullpen guys may be expected to carry a heavy load. Um, 
Zach Gretsch was, was their closer all year and he got a start down the stretch. Um, you know, which is really unusual. Um, he, that was it, also in that Oregon State series. Yes, yes, it was. And he did not get a start last weekend in the regional, but he came in early in the loss to Irvine, which was a, a four to two, you know, Stanford carried a four to two lead into that late and Irvine scored six runs in the eighth, which pushed it to the if necessary game. And, um, but, but Gretsch, as a guy that's closed all year, had six saves in Pac-12 play, um, he he uh, went three and a third scoreless, and then pitched again the next night, and and almost totaled a hundred pitches over those two appearances. And so he carried a load. He's a side armor, a big right right handed side armor. And by the way, I mentioned Quinn Matthews is the guy that's sort of feels like their third starter that's given up a ton of runs and everything. And he was the guy who started against the Red Raiders in February of 2020, uh, took the loss in four innings, gave up three runs, two earned. Uh, you know, his, his, uh, he, he got a start against Irvine and went two innings and gave up two runs, but threw 59 pitches to get six outs. And so whatever he was, he was the guy Gretsch came in behind on that Sunday loss. Yeah. yeah, And it kind of gives you an indication that either they need either Matthews to get some, get some innings and get it to the bullpen almost as the opener type guy, or, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly how they're playing that, but that's, uh, those those numbers just don't add up to have a weekend starter with a nine ERA this deep into the season. It it just it's it's revealing to us, and it's either going to reveal that Gretsch is going to throw in that starting spot and Palish and one of these other guys that has carried some load out of the you know out of the bullpen is going to step into more of a game ending closer spot. I don't know, but I doubt that we'll see just three straight starting pitchers like what we're getting from the Red Raiders right now. Because I was going to ask Gus, just looking at Gretch's numbers, you know, he, he's got 13 saves on the whole season, but he's only 5-5 five and five and he's got 12 hit batters. Does, does, do you get the feeling that he's got some control issues there? Well, I know that he's a side armor, and so those, those are the type of guys that tend to hit more guys, especially right-handers, you know, because the, the arm side deal is just crazy. You know, and he's throwing, yeah, he's throwing the frisbee. I mean, somebody, um, somebody sent me. Uh, I, it's the video I sent you guys. Somebody DM that to me, and uh, they they comped him to Taylor Floyd. He just said, "Hey, they've got they've got their own Taylor Floyd." And yep. I, you know, I don't know if I if I give him that, those kind of props, but he's got 13 saves. That's six in the country, and he's got 30 appearances. So they're certainly leaning on him. You know, all throughout the season. Sometimes those guys can be a little bit rubber arm too. The side armors, uh, just because they're not, you know, they're, it's, it's a little bit easier of an arm slot to pitch from. But you know, in Big Twelve play, twenty three innings, seven walks. That's really good. He did hit five guys, so you know, about a free pass every two innings. It's it's a little high for what you'd see with a closer, but um, you know, two and three with six saves in, in Pac twelve play. So um, you know, sometimes those dudes can be really tough on right handers, um, but you know, left-handers see him well. And so, you know, hopefully the, the, you, you got to believe guys like that are, uh, you know, that that's where Jace and Cal and, and our left-handed bats probably slobber a little bit to get to a side armor. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a opportunity for Dylan Carter to get a little bit hot here against this guy. You're, you're absolutely right. That's interesting. Um, it really is. I don't know who comes out in that situation though. I don't know. I don't know. 
you know, well, maybe Gretch coming in is the time you make a defensive yeah. change, you know, and, and, and yeah. you We're not start taking, it on the right. We're not taking the big Kurt out of the lineup. Yeah, <laughs> there, right. No. There I said it. I said <laughs> the it. big Kurt. I got it. There you in. go. There you go, David Collier. <laughs> the big Kurt. <laughs> well, and the only other thing I was going to mention about these two teams, and it, it was just kind of the comparison that I put together for them. Uh, and I didn't do every category that exists, but something that stuck out to me, Tech and Stanford both have the same number of walks on the season, 215 walks on the season. Tech's got almost 100 more strikeouts. They've got more than – they got 1.3 strikeouts per nine higher than Stanford pitching. So when you look back on the season and think about us as fans, the frustration with having to wait for this team to grow up a little bit on the mound – and then you look to what they've dealt with uh, in, you know, majority Pac-12 play. That's that I think is pretty striking with what they could be coming in with. It's a it's a really good offensive club. I mean, they're this is a dangerous ball club. There's no doubt about it. And uh, you know, just in in very very general terms, teams that come in here just throughout the Tadlock era, and heck, maybe even farther back, but certainly through the Tadlock era. You know, teams that come in here with a big, heavy offense first profile tend to not, uh, you know, it tends to be a tough thing to come in here and say we're going to outslug the Red Raiders in their ballpark. But, uh, yeah. you know, what what this Stanford ball club has done is legit offensively. These are these are legit numbers. And again, they're doing it. They're doing it at sea level. You know, then we're at 3,200 feet. So the ball doesn't fly where like where they play like it flies here. Um, and, and, you know, this is a big physical group, a little bit different than what we've seen. And certainly Stanford's got, had had plenty of good hitters and good offensive players. Tommy Edmonds, I'm looking at him playing for the Cardinals right now. So they, they pump their share of big league offensive players out and hitters and all that, but just their profile of their ball clubs have always been a little bit different than this one. This team can really swing it. And uh, they're having to piece some things together on the mound. And I think it sets up for a, 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 a really a fascinating matchup. I, I don't know yeah. what we're going to get, but I bet you it's a, I bet you it's a blast out there. And I think two things, I think the crowd is, uh, you know, the, the crowd is an issue. If, if, if tech stays in that and the, you know, our crowds are like they normally are and they're engaged and in the games enough to be, to be uh, a factor, uh, Stanford just does, there's just nowhere like that in the Pac-12, and uh, and certainly they weren't playing in front of that this weekend as we talked about. And the heat is going to be a legit deal. I mean that that's we're back to Louisville 2018 regional, you know, hundred plus degree deals. They just don't play in that. Uh, they, they haven't been playing in Ever. that. Uh-uh. It was 65. I had a conference call today with a guy who was in the Bay Area. Who, who follows college baseball very closely. And he was talking about this. We were talking about this Tech-Stanford matchup. And he said, and I said, yeah, it's going to be 102 here. And so I don't think that, I don't think that's uh, something they deal with much. And he laughed and he goes, it's 65 here right now. And that was today. And so, and yeah. so you know. I kept asking my Google because I didn't believe it. When I was watching yeah. them all bundled up during that game, it was 60. You know, and I even yes. checked this morning. I think it was 48. You know, yeah, so. 60, 60 price sounds pleasant when we think about what it's going to be like at 103 and we're sucking down waters and, you know, in, in a couple of days. But uh, I think it I think it really can create something. You know, I don't know if it's a home field advantage, but you think about what takes teams out of out of their comfort zone and whatnot. You would think that 
big crowds and, and a super, you know, really over the top heat like this are two, two, you know, pretty formidable ways because there's no real way to get around that or escape that. The crowd's going to be there. It's going to be loud and it's going to be sweltering. Well, it, it certainly affected it. Louisville a couple of years ago because even remember going into the regional, you know, Dan McDonald, Dan McDonald was like, hey, we're going to wear our black uniforms too. We're not going to be intimidated by the heat. But, you know, in two games against Texas Tech, they melted. I mean, you know, it was so, so uh, you know, it, it, you know, you can say it all you want to that it's not going to affect you. But, you know, when, when it gets out on the field, and you're standing out there in the middle of center field and the heat's just radiating up on you and you're not used to that, you know, you, you're going to get affected whether you want to be or not. Well, and you don't just get physically affected by the heat, which, of course, we all do, you know. And, and uh, you know, if you're a little more used to it, your body can handle it a little better. But it's just a mental break. I mean, you, you like Gus said, you can't escape it. You're constantly thinking about it. You're thinking about getting out of it. You're looking for a way to avoid it. I mean, it's nothing's going to get better. And then you add the crowd and the situation and the whole deal on top of it. And, yeah, I think it's an X factor. And even though our guys haven't played in it a lot this year because we've had this long spring, um, I think that just the majority of who they are and where they're from, it's and they've played in it before. you know. But I think it can be a big mental factor on top of the physical side. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it points to uh... – you know, just wanting to be in games and be, you know, you, you, you don't want to let get into a situation where they're energized by your environment, you know, because they're playing from ahead all the time. And so, it, you know, it, it still comes back to starting pitching and this and that. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if Beck is throwing on Saturday, you know, that sets up to be a premium pitching matchup there. And, uh, with that in mind, you, you know, you really want to go out and get that Friday game, knowing that their best guys will serve it. Just, you know, keep the pressure on and keep them uncomfortable as, as sort of as George alluded to with that, uh, with that Louisville series, they never got comfortable and they were dealing with heat and crowd the whole time. And that's, that's the kind of, you know, tech's been really good about that, about applying pressure and just, just, you know, that's just who they are and that's who they've been this year, uh, certainly at home. And so that's, that's, you know, a real key to success, I think, is keeping this big crowd pumped up and engaged because th- this, you know, it's it's just something. I mean, we've, we've seen big crowds. You can see them at Bomb. You could see them at Starkville. I mean, there's big crowds in other places and there's engaged crowds in other places. Arkansas is usually an engaged crowd with the Suey Pig and all their deal. But, our, you know, our place, at, our place is kind of cantankerous with the metal stands and the, you know, Raider power all the time and just, you know, just just all whatever chaos all is coming the time. out of ours. Yeah. I mean, Raider, Raider the, power all the time. Well, just the clap, clap, clap. <laughs> yeah, the clap, clap, clap. Just the, it's a cantankerous, engaged crowd more often than not. And that's just not something they see in the Pac-12 very often. And you don't see it a lot around the Big 12 either, for that matter. But it it you know it can be a pretty edgy environment and and that's a that's a home field advantage and it has been through going back to Coach Hayes' time here. You wonder if Esker is picking Savage's brain about what you know what to expect this weekend. <laughs> well, and I asked Savage about that and I I tweeted that video out uh, in the post game and he was complimentary and Gus you had talked about it just with us you know the last time he was here and in, in yeah. with USC as an assistant and stuff like that. But he was complimentary. Like this is the way it should be. It should be hard to play here. It should be a big environment and a home home field advantage. I mean, that's how it is. And he was complimentary coach Tadlock for building it. But that's my final question, guys. I mean, when you talk about 
Tim Tadlock, what he's done here. Um, I just look at him and I, and, and it's just a, like a mystery to me, like a magician, you know, like you've been through this season. It's been exhausting. There's been struggles. There's been all these things that have gone on. And then you look at it and it's just like, it all is just kind of coming together. And it's not luck. I mean, there's been so much intentionality and getting Wilson back from injury is a big deal. And, but like the moves and the pitching and, and all this stuff, it's just kind of watching a master at work, watching him walk a team into the postseason and, you know, kind of put it all together in the, not in the final minute, but, you know, here when it matters the most. Well, and Keith, he said in the postgame me- the media the other day, and it was, it was a, a drum he's been beating lately, is that this team hadn't played his best baseball. This team hadn't played, you know, it's sort of a matter-of-fact statement to him. This team hadn't played his best baseball. And, and, and then they do what they did last weekend, and you go, wow. You know, and, and I, I think it, it what it really points to is just the patience of a guy who's been around the game a long time and knows, you know, that they just baseball people in general weather ups and downs well because, you know, it's a, whether it's a 162-game season or a 56 or whatever, even high school guys in the 30s, you can't panic. You just can't panic, you know, and, and fortunately he's had enough talent and stuff that uh, – around him that he's been able to try different combinations and be patient. And sure enough, right here at the end, a couple of freshmen are stepping forward out of that pitching staff that, that has really required a lot of patience due to injuries. And, uh, you know, and, and here we are with what sets up to be, you know, a really interesting Matt, uh, super regional and, and, uh, you know, just an outstanding performance in a regional and, and, uh, you know, who knows where this team's headed, but man, they, they just, you know, Tim's patience and the staff's patience and just the developmental aspects of several of these individual players that we really have time to get into. And it's, it's what it's all about. I mean, it's, it's why he's got a lifetime contract and why we're filling the stadium, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, he, he's those, those guys. One thing I would say about this, and I'm sure it's not universal because you just can't say this kind of thing and be a hundred percent certain, but, dudes love playing here and they love playing for him. I mean, we, you know, I sat over there, we looked across the field from where our seats are and George and I are on the front row over there, kind of above the first base on deck circle. And you look over the third base on deck circle and you see several former players over there. There's Lanning and Steven Smith and Cam Warren. Yeah. Guys and those Start guys. fights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> John, fans are all, but, but that, you know, there's something to that, that those dudes are kind of in there, John, and, you know, stirring, stirring it up a little bit with the UCLA people. Cam wasn't, Steven and Eric's one. Sure. But, but, but you know, the, the, bull, the bull like, stirring it up, never would have thought. No, no, never, never, <laughs> never friendship guy. No, but the, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 those guys being engaged enough to want to do that, you know, sometimes you can get the former player that's sort of aloof and over it and all that stuff. And, you know, those guys were locked in and engaged and cheering and talking noise to the UCLA on deck hitters. And, you know, and you go, hey, that, that's 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 where you see guys wanting to be around the thing. Noisy was sitting up there. You know, the, the, the list goes on and on. One of the Redmond boys was in the ballpark this weekend. That's a good sign. That's the sign of guys that that, that love what they were part of and don't want to stay close to this at, at whatever level they can. Uh, you know, that, that's a big deal. Well, and I can tell you that too, Gus, and, and listeners know, and, and you guys, of course, know, my, my brother-in-law played for Tech, but in the early 2000s, so way before Tim was here, 
And he came back once, uh, geez, I think it was in 2017. Uh, first time he'd been back, really. And uh, we went down and, you know, he talked to Coach Tadlock, who recruited him from when he was at Grayson. And, um, you know, just a nice little visit, went to the clubhouse. He talked to a couple guys that were from Midland, that kind of deal. And we, when we left, we kind of got in the car and he goes, you know, that's really cool because my coach is gone. Coach, coach Hayes was my guy, you know, and he said, but feeling welcomed back, even though, the people, you know, other than Shash, like everybody else is gone. And he said, uh, he said, coming back and feeling welcome still, that means a lot, you know, to be, to not have played for him. And I think that speaks to what you're saying, Gus. And the folks out there don't know, we were working for y'all last week. We recorded a preview for the regional and the audio crapped out. We weren't able to get it out to you, but this was something we talked about in that. And, and one of the things we talked about there, Gus, kind of to, to wrap it up was, his patience in believing in his guys through the season because they're his guys, you know, and it's, it's knowing baseball, it's knowing that guys need a chance to come around and all, all that kind of stuff. But there's just a loyalty to him too, in giving guys every possible opportunity to, as he says, you know, to write their name in the lineup. You are correct, sir. And, uh, you know, there's just a buy-in that goes with it. And, uh, you know, guys, guys, I mean, you, you know, it's just, it's, it's got to be the kind of situation that, you know, guys want to play in and hang, hang in, stay with it. You're not miserable if you're not in the starting lineup. And, again, I can't speak for everybody, but uh, – and that's a big deal uh, because, you, you know, the, at this point where this program is, they know they're part of something special. How special each year, who knows. But, you know, they're going to be in the thick of it. They're going to be in the conversation, and that's – uh that's a big part of it when you're showing up in October and November and certainly in January and February and the season gets going, you're going, Hey, we believe, you know, we believe in each other and the whole deal. And he, he, you know, the coaches and all of it and, and that the crowds are going to show up and just that the, that the thing's working. And that's a big deal, especially at this point in time with, with uh, transfer portals and all that. I mean, that, that, you know, I, we don't even know what that's going to be like, but just that, that, uh, you know, if guys want to be a part of this, you certainly don't have a bunch of guys leaving, and who knows who may be showing up. Absolutely. And think about – sorry, George, I see you about to go, and, and uh, all I was going to say is think about what you've done so far up to this point without the big facility you know, investments that other programs have made, even mid-majors, and now you're going to start getting some of those. Not that it's an automatic free pass to great recruiting, uh, but – all of those other things and how important they are. Like the word is out, you know, playing here is great. He's a great coach, that kind of stuff. These are the guys you're going to be in the mix. Like all that stuff is there. And there's obviously a way they're going about things that dudes want to be there and want to play for it. But go away, go ahead, George. Well, I mean, just in, in this whole conversation, two things really just kind of jumped to my mind. And the first thing is that no matter, no matter what the season has, has, unfolded no matter you know like like especially a season like this with all the injuries stuff like that you know whether things have gone swimmingly or whether things have been a challenge somehow or another he always seems to be tim always seems to be able to push the button at the right time pushes the right button at the right time and gets things going and and he's done that again this year you know in the most challenging of circumstances and and the other thing that 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 comes to my mind is that he is two steps ahead of everybody in in what he wants to do with this team. Because you think you, – you mentioned we did try to do this last week and the audio uh, uh, took a dump. But, you know, we talked for an hour, hour and a half about this. We talked with all our friends about this. 
Not once do I remember anybody's you know uttering the word Micah Dallas to the bullpen. Not once. No. Yeah. And there it was. Right. He's out there Friday night. He's Certainly not to the closer either. Exactly. So, but you, but you look at it and you're like, well, duh, that makes sense. Why not? You know, you're only going to need three starters. Why not put your fourth guy, the guy you know is a tremendous bullpen guy, the guy you know that can give you some length in the bullpen, and boom, that solves it. It's not something you can necessarily do during the season, but with Chase Hampton emerging, now you can do it. And you're thinking, well, duh, that makes sense. So, like I said, he's he, he it always seems to be two steps ahead of everybody out there, and I think that's what makes him such a special coach that he is. Well, and and we talked about this in the in the lost re- the lost tapes. That's what it'll be. And we uh, we talked about yeah, we talked about uh, that exact thing, George. And and every year too, there's that inflection point, you know. And and I talked about this today with Carlos and David too. And you know, there's all the, the all the different things. Zach Reams gets hot against Baylor. Um, you lose to Baylor this year, and I think there was a button pushed after that game, challenging this team to get their head right. You know, to some extent. Plus, to, and, and to quit worrying about injuries and all that. Um, and then, you know, Josh Young moving to shortstop, I think, was another one of those that we agree on. But I would argue we got a second button. I mean, and, and it was defensive changes and pitching changes walking into the regional in Lubbock. I mean, that we knew a little bit. You know, we had heard we caught the wind of and we all knew that Kurt Wilson was just about ready to come back. So we had our suspicions about some defensive changes. But you're right, you know, and and what made that Chase Hampton move possible? We'll walk backwards a couple weeks, and he got a had a really nice start against Kansas in the final game, you know. And then, and you're think we're looking at the Big Twelve tournament that week and wondering if we should care about it or not. And he's looking two weeks ahead to starting on a Friday night in a regional. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. All right, boys. I just got an email that said I got super regional tickets, so those will probably be for sale. I imagine I'll be doing the media thing this weekend. So. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Got ours. But well. uh, there you go. So, any final thoughts? Anything else that we missed or that you guys want to mention before we walk out the door? How about the final thoughts that we had? One of y'all had some really good ones in our in the lost tapes. You want to mention that again? I don't Shoot, know. That was what last week. I don't know if I can remember back then. Not. Enjoying this and not taking it for granted, That's if I true. recall. Oh yeah, no, yeah. There's, there's no doubt about that, and and uh, I think, uh, and you know, I was, I was alluding to that just to, you know, as much as anything, encourage attendance or whatever. Don't, don't ever be bored by regional. I think that's what I was getting at. Was don't ever be bored by regional games and regional, you know, success and regionals, and, um, and I mean, it's, it's just part of it you don't it's just not what you see you don't see um you know the arkansas lsu mississippi state and i'm drawn on those three names uh because of the those three programs because of where their attendance figures are every year big parks that are full and full 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 when it gets to this time to crunch time you know they're in the habit of of dialing up the tailgates and dialing up the attendance and working through the heat and doing all that stuff and you know, it's it's a big deal. Uh, you know, if you if you got tickets and you can't go, give them to somebody um, because this thing needs to be juiced. And the fact is, win, lose, or draw, this is the end of the home baseball portion of the schedule. Hopefully, there's much more baseball for these guys after this weekend. But um, you know, these are the last two to three games in this ballpark until next February. So, man, don't 
don't pass up the chance or don't be bored by this because it, uh, you know, you, you go a year or two without it and we'll be, we'll be starved like people in the desert looking for water. And after what's been, you know, an unbelievable five-year run and then six out of seven years, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing we're, we've got going and don't take it for granted. Cause it, uh, you know, it's, it's like NCAA tournament appearances in basketball. You don't want to, you know, you, you just don't want to pass them up. You don't want to well, miss don't, definitely don't take hosting for granted. And I was no. just thinking about this and I save my days, you know, for this time of year and you know, my, my days off and especially the chance to go to Omaha for the duration, you know, and I'm fortunate to save days up and be able to do that if, if we're fortunate enough to get there. But I was thinking about that, man, the hosting makes it so special and so accessible for all of us because, you know, making three road trips, if you do get to Omaha or winning on the road in general, you know, in the postseason is so tough. And so that uh, that's a special thing, too, that's coming with this success that we all need to remember doesn't happen automatically by any means. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's a it's a uh, it's a it's a privilege to be able to go out there and watch a a top twenty five, a top ten, a top five baseball program and and do what they do right in our own backyard. So you know, having having you know, and Gus can go back farther than I can, but having covered and and watched this watched this program since nineteen ninety eight and gone through some lean years, you know, even even if we lose a regional, I'm never ever ever going to take it for granted. That you know how special it is to be able to watch playoff baseball at Dan Law Field. It's it's a uh, it's a tremendous thing. Perfect, I agree. Great great parting shots, fellas. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for talking ball. I always enjoy it, even if the audio craps out. I enjoy talking baseball with you guys. Thanks for your thoughts and your insight. I know you're all both nerds. And uh, everybody's just, we just been digging into numbers and looking at dudes. Gus isn't doing any broadcasting. We're just. We're just digging in, <laughs> wanting to know about teams. Makes the heckling better, that's for sure. Well, Gus is a master so, at research. That's what that that's what that doctorate is for. He, you know, that's that's research based. Yeah, right that's right. That's right. High well, level stuff. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you, fellas. Go find George at TTU Jorge on Twitter. Gus at Gus two six. You can find me at Keith B Patrick at Red Raider Dugout. Thanks for supporting us, supporting Dinger Derby, and supporting Texas Tech baseball. I appreciate you supporting our little part of the world here trying to keep you informed about this team always feel free to interact on social media send emails whatever it is ask questions we'll be out there this weekend covering all three games for you live on twitter have recaps for you and absolutely looking forward to a great weekend of baseball tech's fifth super regional under head coach tim tadlock it's going to be awesome stanford's coming to town two o'clock friday two o'clock saturday if necessary two o'clock sunday all three of the games on at least ESPNU, potentially, if there's a third game, it could go to ESPN2. So with that, I'm Keith for George and Gus. Thanks for tuning in to Dinger Derby. Go check out Red Raider Dugout, see what we got for you there, and get out to the ballpark, and we'll hopefully see you out there. Until then, wreck them. Thanks for tuning in to Dinger Derby and sharing our love for Texas Tech Red Raider baseball. You can connect with Keith on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Red Raider Dugout. And find more great tech baseball coverage at RedRaiderDugout.com. Help us out by rating us and leaving a review on iTunes. And remember to tell your friends about the show. Keith will be back soon with another episode of Dinger Derby. And until then, Wreck'em Tech. Keep your hand on your gun. 
Don't you trust anyone There's just one kind of man that you can trust That's a dead man or a gringo like me Be the first one to fire Every man is a liar There's just one kind of man who tells the truth That's a dead man or a gringo like me